I want to talk to you about something today that uh, we've been talking about discipleship. And I know how that word lands with a lot of people. It sounds, well, I don't know what it sounds like to you. I know what it sounds like to me. Anybody like being disciplined? It's the same root word, but, uh, you know. And I, there are certain things that we do. So what I thought we'd do today is see, I, I, what I want to do is take a, take, a, take a look at the disciples, like who we're talking about when we say the disciples out of the Bible. And then I want to also take a look at a culture that was really good at discipling. Okay, you ready for this? Okay, now I have to be honest, some of this might feel a little uncomfortable for you today. I'm aware of that. I don't want you to think I get up here and then enjoy poking the bear. And you're not bears, but I'm, but I realize my role as pastor is to pastor. And there's times where it, it may be a little uncomfortable. So you ready for that? Anybody want to leave? You can leave. I mean, <laughs> just kidding. It would be awkward, huh? If you left right now, it'd be funny. But all right, well, let's do this. Anybody know who the disciples were? Do you remember their names? There's a couple lists, and some people, it's comical to me when people, well, let me be fair. I, I understand there are different lists, and the, if it's the first time you knew that, you might think, well, was there a mistake? No, but if you don't look deep enough, you're going to make this surface judgment about maybe something's wrong there. Well, the, the same thing is true. In fact, I was just talking with some, some people this morning about uh, names and nicknames, and I was talking about how... Um, we, we use different names, and a lot of times, the very common names that they were using in the first century, they would have to put some qualifier on the common name. You know what a, one of the most common enduring names in, in America is, is Dave, David, right? You're aware of that, right? I mean, how many Davids do you know? If you start thinking about it, there's a bunch. So how do you, how do you determine the different Davids? Well, in America, we have surnames. We have last names. You'd say David Hosel, for instance, you know, that's different than a different David you might know. But if you didn't know that, and in this day and age, they didn't always do it that way. Sometimes they did, but not always. They might have some other identifier for the name. So let me just go through the names real quick. So you have Simon Peter. Peter was the name Jesus gave Peter because it sounded like rock, Petros, in Greek. So that was part of it. Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee. The reason they had to add in son of Zebedee is because there was another James in Jesus' disciples. Isn't that kind of weird to think about? Jesus chose 12 disciples, and in the 12, there were three duplicate names because there were common names. John, Philip, Bartholomew, uh, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, to, to differentiate him from Zebedee, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, which made it different than Simon Peter, and then Judas Iscariot, who you know betrayed Jesus. But there was actually another Judas, it's just that he didn't always go by that name. So I guess that gets confusing. But here's what I really want to zero in on today. I think in America, my whole life, we've done discipleship by accident. No offense. I mean, I'm a pastor. I've been doing this a long time. And I feel like we've made efforts to do discipleship well, and to be fair, All of you have been probably part of church and been discipled. And to be honest, we've all been discipled somehow by somebody or something. I'm challenging us to do something different, different than what we've always done. So what did a disciple mean in first century Israel? Every Jew would have known exactly what it meant. 
But when I talk about being a disciple here in, in church today or 21st century, it can mean a lot of different things. But the Jews would have known exactly what it meant because they had a very rigorous, codified process for discipleship. So if you were called a disciple, the first thing they would ask you is, disciple of whom? Because what they did is they had this really intense system. Now the Chosen, I think if, if you watch the Chosen series, they do a pretty good job of illustrating it. And you may not have picked this out, maybe you did. But the way it would work is you would follow a certain rabbi. And what rabbi meant was teacher. All it was was a teacher. And here's what's interesting. In the first century, you could be a rabbi if you were qualified, but they didn't have a qualification system per se. But a lot of times the way it would work is they had very famous rabbis who would have a school and you might be part of that school. So some of you who are really into this, you might remember that Paul followed a certain rabbi. Does anybody remember his name? Gamaliel. Very famous guy in the first century. So when Paul said, I was a student of Gamaliel, everybody would have known who that was, and that would have given him a certain cloud. It'd be like saying you went to Ovid, Harvard, right? In their world. In their world. So this is how it worked. And I know this sounds crazy because... It doesn't fit with the way we typically do things. But here's how it would work. If you wanted to follow a certain rabbi, you would ask him to be his disciple, and then the rabbi would have to give you permission to follow him. Isn't that interesting? We don't really do it that way. I mean, we're Americans, right? We do what we want. I can, I can follow anybody I want. I can do what I want. That's not how it worked in their day and in their world. The rabbi had to agree to the student's request. And if you, if you ask to be part of that rabbi's school or his group, then you would have to submit, willingly submit to that rabbi's teaching, his authority in every area of your life, and his interpretation of scripture. Because that's basically what separated them, is how they interpreted, interpreted the Old Testament. And it worked. It was really an interesting thing, because most good Jewish boys, boys, would start off memorizing scripture as early as age five. Now, this is hard to imagine in our world today because we just don't use our brains like they did. I mean, they memorized everything. How many of you know your kids' phone numbers by heart? Right? You do? Good for you, brother. Okay. But we used to have all these numbers memorized. Remember? Remember back then? Remember how you would, remember the whole, remember that phone? Not only did you have them memorized, but you had to wait a minute for it to get back around, especially if it was a nine or a zero. Remember that? Now we can already memorize anything. It's just, if you don't use that brain, it's like a muscle. It just, it, it gets weaker. But how it would work for them, it would be an intense program of learning. And it was part of their entire community. And it was something that was, that was built into their society I mean, that's really what I'm going to talk to you about. That's why the Jewish people have been a people. And in fact, I was reading this the other day. They're the only people group that have maintained a culture, a language, and a, and a homeland for 4,000 years. Nobody else has that. Nobody. Nobody has that. Here's how it would work. Usually from the ages 5 to 10, good Jewish boys would sit down with a rabbi and start to memorize the Torah. That's the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Have you read those? You realize how long they are? This is not like, you know, Mary had a little lamb type thing. 
Not like that. The goal, here's the goal, was that they would have all of that memorized by age 10. Then what would happen, this is goals, not, not every kid did it, but this was the goal. Then by ages 10 to 14, they would continue memorizing other portions of the Old Testament. Now they didn't memorize the whole thing, but parts of it were really important. And it depended also sometimes on the master or the rabbi, what they would have you memorize. But generally speaking, that was the goal. By age 14, they would start to, to do a separating type process, kind of like what we do in school a little bit. So students who showed an aptitude would be invited to continue, and it would involve more memorization. And then as they got older, there'd become another point. Usually, it would, it would be a little bit older, but usually around the age 14, then they would, they would decide, is this person going to have the aptitude to continue this process? And if they were, they were asked to continue. Now, at, at some point here, it gets interesting because uh, very few would invite, be invited to become a disciple. And the rabbi would have to invite them and they would have to qualify for this. Their entire life would be, have to be devoted to that rabbi. They would leave home. They would live with and around that rabbi. Then it would get to be super serious. And then it came down to, if you didn't make the cut... This is harsh, but listen to this. This is a quote out of first century rabbis. It said, then you were told to go make children and pray that one of them would become a rabbi. And you were invited to go apply your trade, learn a trade. Isn't that interesting? Who did Jesus choose? Did you ever notice that? Do you realize who he chose? He chose men who were applying their trade. You know what that meant? They hadn't made the cut. Had, had they gone through that process, and we don't know the histories of them, but had they gone through that process, what had happened was they did not qualify and they were told to go work their trade. And yet that's who Jesus chose. That's a beautiful thing, really, if you think about it. Because they would have had to do the same things, leave everything, follow Jesus, leave their trade, and then follow him as a rabbi. You know, the more I think about it, I think about the fact that he chose them just like us, I mean, how many of us are really qualified? I mean, really. Are we any of us qualified to be his disciple? Probably not. But he still chooses you. And just like you and me, we may not have made that other cut, but we qualify to be one of his rabbis. It would have been a continually living experience. You would have walked with him, watched how he inter uh, interacted. He would ask questions, and then you would try to answer. And then you would ask him questions, and he would answer they would ask questions not just about the law or the, the Old Testament, but they would ask questions about daily living. So they might say something like, Rabbi, what is your opinion of how we should treat our wives? And they would tell them. And then they would refer, refer to something in the Old Testament scripture to back up what they were saying. It would be part of their daily life, just like I, I mentioned the, the series, The Chosen, like you see them walking with Jesus and him doing that. You would learn about their interactions. You would study together, memorize together, and he would quiz you. What would happen is you would, you would give up whatever the rest of your life was and think about the disciples themselves. Think about the fact that, for instance, James and John, Andrew, they were fishermen. And scripture specifically says when Jesus called them, they left their nets immediately and followed him. So they walked away from their jobs to follow him full time. That was a huge commitment, huge change in their life, huge. 
What do we do typically? And this is not to offend anybody. I'm just, let's just be honest. What do we do? We usually take on Jesus as a part of our life and usually a comfortable part, right? A part that we didn't mind changing in the first place, right? I mean, we, we typically don't give him everything. We just give him the parts that feel good, right? What he did with those disciples, when he called them out, they followed everything. And then every time he would teach and he would say something like, you have heard it said, but I say, what he was doing is taking the letter of the law and showing them the heart, God's heart behind the law. But in the process, every single time, being good Jewish boys, they would have stopped and said, this is different than what I've heard before. He was changing everything. He changed their religion. He showed them that he was the Messiah. He changed them from fishers of men or fishermen to fishers of men. He changed their values, their goals. Think about, just as a random example, but think about when, when Peter said, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? You realize Peter thought he was doing a good thing. And Jews are so into numbers, seven would have been a complete number. And what did Jesus answer? No, seven times 70. So I imagine some of you are like, okay, that's 490 times, I can do that. He changed everything, and then they changed the entire world. You realize how impactful being a disciple of Jesus was? Because it wasn't just something that was comfortable or you did on Sundays. Not that you just do it on Sundays. But it wasn't something that you just put on when people were watching, right? I've told this example before. I'm going to go ahead and tell it and just get myself in trouble, but... You know how it is when you have people over and you clean the house different? Right? Yeah. It's kind of like our lives, isn't it? Do you just put Jesus on and clean it up just when you're going to church? Or just when someone else is watching? I mean, why do we do it that way? I think I've said it in here, but I'll just say it just because I'm an idiot. But remember when we were first married and had somebody over and I said, why don't we just keep it like this all the time? Mm. <laughs> yes, you can do that. Yes. Do you realize how radical the disciples were? It's probably hard to realize. Because when we read scripture, we, we read it through this filter of modern life and, and as Americans. And we, we watch what they do and we become so familiar with the stories that it just filters right past. And we, we don't realize how radically different they were. This changed everything. Not only did they leave their former lives as Jews and become Christians, and follow this new teaching and this new Messiah, this Jesus Christ. But they were radically different than the Roman government that controlled literally the entire world. I mean, I know that you know, people know this stuff, but I mean, Rome ruled the world. We have this period of history they call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, because Rome ruled with an iron fist, which was kind of a good thing, because it made it safe To be a normal person, you weren't worried about robbers around every corner because there were soldiers standing there. They ruled everything. They changed everything. And then what happens is nobody's like Peter, James, and John, and Thomas. Nobody's. Because the people who were somebody's were like Nero and Julius Caesar, right? That's how it was. And now what happens? Look at our world today. We name our our dogs Caesar and Nero. And we name our children Peter and James and John and Thomas, right? The entire world changed. What, what I want you to see is they were completely discipled. 
To the point where, what did they call the early followers of Christ? Little Christs. Little Christs. That's what the word Christian means. So that when you look at that person, you're seeing Jesus. That was the whole concept of discipleship in that day. You would literally become so much like your rabbi that then you would take that teaching and then do it yourself. It's that process of teaching where you watch me, then you do it with me, then I watch you, then you do it. You become the discipler. It was supposed to be this this cycle of changing who you were into this person and then you become that person. It was everything. They lived, they preached, they died. And they died radical deaths from what they lived before. Now, I don't know how their lives really were before. We don't, we don't even get to see that. We know they were fishermen, some of them. We know Matthew was a tax collector. We don't know what their lives were really, really, really like before. But we know that the radical change in them led them to live a life that nothing could be the same from then on. Nothing. Nothing was normal. They give up literally everything, including their lives. Now, look. We live as Christians, and you guys are Christians. I get it. But how much do we really live as Christians? I mean, would we be willing to give up everything like they did? Do you know how they died? Have you ever looked into that? They literally left where they were and everything that was comfortable, and they were persecuted. James, James was the first to die. You know how he died? The Jews threw him off the temple. Off the height of the temple. It was really high. It was like a form of stoning in a way because you get thrown down and you're crushed. Your body's crushed. He was the first martyr. He was killed that way. The others, most of them went preaching because they took it serious. And when Jesus said, go make disciples, they went and made disciples. And they went in places where nobody had heard the gospel before. And they preached and preached and preached. And literally the world changed. Within a few hundred years, Christianity is the, the religion of Rome. And it's, it's everywhere. It's mind-blowing how fast in time that this changed. Thomas, they say, was killed with a spear. Uh, Philip was hung. Peter, Peter was hung upside down. When they got ready to crucify him, he said, I cannot, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord. And so they said, okay. And they just crucified him upside down. That's why a symbol for Peter, if you're over in, the, in like Rome and whatever, you'll see this upside-down cross. That's Peter's cross. Matthew, Levi, they had those two names. He was martyred, martyred in Ethiopia. Jude or Thaddeus, he had both those names. He was killed with arrows. They shot him through with arrows. Uh, John, the apostle, he's the only one not, that didn't die. They, they say that the, the traditions are that he was boiled in oil. They tried to kill him, and it didn't kill him. Instead, it bleached his skin white. This is, this is the, the story is that he preached from the oil, and that even his executioner, everybody accepted Christ, and then he had this weird look to him. But anyway, he, he ultimately, they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. You know why? They couldn't stop him from preaching. What stops us from preaching? A little peer pressure? The idea that someone might judge us, right? I, I get it. Please don't be offended. I'm, I'm right with you, right? James, the lesser they called him, he was sawn in pieces. I only laugh because it's just funny to think you got the older and the younger but he's called John the, or James the Lesser because he was younger, but he was sawn in pieces. Bartholomew and Nathaniel, who went by both those names, he was filleted alive. And then Andrew was crucified. Again, he said the same thing. I couldn't be crucified like Jesus, so they crucified him on an X-shaped cross, and that's his symbol. If you're, if you're over there in Europe, a lot of times you'll see 
You'll see all the apostles, they'll be like up on all these carvings and you'll see all these symbols. But if you don't know what you're looking for, you won't realize who's who, but that's how you know. So how do we do discipleship today? What do we do? We're all individuals, right? You be who you, you be you. You do, you do you. Right? We don't, we don't try to make these cookie cutter disciples and say, look, you need to follow this teacher and this rabbi and be just like them and do like them and get up when they do and pray as long as they do and memorize all this. What do we do? Now, as ministers, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's different ways to become a minister. I mean, you can go to college, seminary. You can be a, a mentorship, do an internship. There's that kind of thing. But what about the rest of us, regular Christian people? Now, look, I know I said this was going to step on some toes, but I think what we've done all these years is kind of discipleship by accident. Now, it's not like we didn't try. I mean, we, we have Sunday school. We have classes. We do these things. You come to church. You're here. So good for you. Good on you. You're here. But... If we could be brutally honest, brutally honest, I preach a sermon. This one is longer than a lot. It won't be that long, but because we have a football game, right? God forbid. But what happens generally? Let's just be really transparent with each other. You might hear a good point and say, God, yeah, that, God said that to me. And then what actually happens? By the time you get to the lobby, and to your car, do you remember that? It might occur to you later or something, or you might get in the car, and like if you have kids, you'll say, hey, what did you guys do in kids' church? And they might tell you, well, what did you learn? And they might tell you, and then you might look at each other and say, oh, that was a good sermon, what, what was it? And you might remember something. You know, as a public speaker, there's a lot of times I hesitate to do really outlandish examples, because usually that's what people will remember, not the point. Right? I get it. I get how that happens. I get it. How much of, let me ask this pointed question, all right? Buckle up. How much have you learned about your faith on purpose? Not just caught it or got it, but how much did you intentionally learn? How much effort have you put into it? I was... I was blown away. There's a lady out, and I, she'll probably be embarrassed if I won't say her name, but she was out in the lobby before church reading her Bible. And I, I was going to kid her more, but like, wow. And I was going to joke around, hey, there's no extra credit today. <laughs> but isn't there? I mean, you get out of it what you put into it. Nothing, that's true for everything in life, every single thing. And you know how it is. People do a halfway job on whatever it is, and you know they're going to get halfway results. It doesn't matter what it is. You could be painting your, your bedroom, or you can be working on something important, or you can be studying, but how much of this relationship with Christ have you gotten because you really worked at it and tried, and how much has it changed your life and shaped your values? But let me ask you, is it true? Do you believe it's true? Then it's worth this. It's worth the effort. And I really feel like All of us need to make some changes. So let's do this now. Let's compare us to Babylon. I know you're like, wait, what? Weren't we just talking about Rome and disciples and now you're going all the way back to Babylon? Yes, yes, I am. Yes, I'm aware. Yeah, you got Egypt, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans. Yeah, I get all that. But the reason I want to compare them is it's a familiar story for a lot of you and maybe you didn't see this part of it. And I I got this from... I was listening to a podcast and they interviewed a lady named Shonda Fulbright 
And if you're using the YouVersion Bible app and following along in the notes, you can all do that. If you just go to events, if you, if you have your location turned on, then it'll, it'll pop up right here with my notes. If not, you can put in 64064 as the zip code. It'll pop up. So I have links to her website and her Facebook. I'd never heard of her before, but she is writing this book about this, and I just heard her on this podcast, and so I'm, I'm using it. I actually... Uh, reached out to her on Facebook. I said, hey, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to use you in my sermon Sunday. And she's like, oh, that's great. And you, you realize Jesus told us to do this, make disciples, right? It's literally a command of Christ. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Holy, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I don't know if that reads a little different now after I've talked about what a disciple meant, but it sure says something different to me. We need to actually do what he said and teach people to do what he said and and learn this Christian life differently. I I said this last week, we're all discipled by somebody. You may not realize it, but we all are, whether it's music or books or podcasts or TV show or whatever it is, they're influencing you. You hear all this today about influencers, but we're all being influenced by something Whatever you let in, the worldview, the values, it's everything. And so you may be saying, well, why Babylon? Well, the the reason is, is because we have a very clear discipleship process right in the Bible. And it tells us exactly what they did. Now, they were clever. Now, they weren't the only ones to do this. A lot of conquering empires did this. A lot did. But let's read what they did. So Daniel 1 during the year, third year of King Jochiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Judah and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jochiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon, Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king, the king ordered Aphanaz, Ashphanaz, you guys should name your kids that, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace, listen carefully, some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. It's 2,500 years ago. Nebuchadnezzar lived around 600 BC. Thriving city. This empire lasted a long time. They were right there in in what we would, you know, today call Iraq. Right on the Euphrates River. Babylon is famous. It's it's seen as a a symbol of wickedness. All the way through the Bible, Babylon to Genesis to Revelation. Tower of Babel was probably there. I mean, we, we have all of these references. Some of us are aware that they were the, of the ancient seven wonders of the world. They had the hanging gardens. It's a, quite a place. Here's the first point I want you to get. Babylon was intentional, not accidental, intentional. What does that mean? You do things with and for a purpose. You choose. It's strategic. He got young men. He got noblemen. Not just ordinary people, but the best of the best of the kids. It's what he did. Why? Why would he do that? It's pretty smart what they were doing. 
Because what he did was he captured the future of Israel. Do you see that? He grabbed the future. He knew that their young minds were moldable, impressionable. They could be trained in the ways of Babylon. They, they would literally become the influencers of the rest of their, their countrymen. Not only was Babylon intentional, but they were immersive. Some of you have studied languages. You know there's nothing like immersive study. Nothing like it. I mean, if you want to learn Spanish, you need to go and live among Spanish speakers. And if that's all you hear, your brain will figure it out, right? No room for flexibility, total immersion, language learning. Listen to this. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years. And then they would enter the royal service. Before you read that next verse, get up there. Do you remember what their names were? You know Daniel. Do you remember the other guys' names? The three Hebrew children? What were their names? I know you're thinking Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. That wasn't their names. What was their names? Anybody know? Did you really know that? Yeah, you looked it up. Okay. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. So listen to this. Three years of training before they could enter the service of the king. Language, literature, history, food, close. Babylon was not neutral. Not neutral. You know what our society's done recently? Our society's acted like we can't be sure of anything. Have you noticed that? Well, you can be. You can be sure that you can't be sure. Or you can't be like traditional Christian values. You can be sure of that. Babylon left no room for neutrality. I want you to hear this. Real discipleship's not neutral. It's just not. Daniel 1.7, the chief of staff renamed them these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. Why did they change their names? Do you know? They stole from them who they were and who their God was. It was their religion, their belief system. Let me... Let me tell you, we don't, we don't often notice this, but in Daniel's name, that E-L, that's a name for God, okay? So here's what his name meant in Hebrew. God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant Yahweh is gracious. So in, in Hananiah, the I-A-H is the form of the word name for God. Mishael, so the E-L, who is what God is? Isn't that a beautiful name? Who is what God is? It's beautiful. There's no God like the God of Israel. That's what his name meant. Azariah meant Yahweh has helped or will help. These were actually common names. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, these names appear in the Old Testament. You know what the names they changed them to meant? Listen to this. Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, was a, it, it meant that Bel, the God of, of uh, Babylon, would protect his life. Hananiah, Shadrach, it meant that the command of Aku, which was the moon god. Mishael, which used to, was, that meant who is like our god, they changed his name to the equivalent in their language, but instead of the real god, it meant Aku. 
So their god Aku, the moon god, was God. And then Azariah's name, Abednego, meant a servant of Nebo, who was one of their gods. Do you see how intentional this is? They weren't playing. They were changing them into different disciples, a disciple of something else. Their names became tributes to those other gods instead of the real and true God. It was all about that. They're good at discipleship. Do you see that? They were good at making new Babylonians. You know who else is good at discipleship? The enemy of your soul. And he wants you. He wants to destroy you. John 10.10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but God has come to give you life and life more abundantly. The enemy wants to destroy you, and he wants to corrupt you with everything, with what you listen to, what you see, the media you use, books. I, I was asking students yesterday at the retreat, I said, is this evil? They didn't know what to say, right? Because I'm an adult saying it. They're like hesitating. I'm like, no, seriously, is this, wrong? Is this evil? It's not. It's a tool, right? Used in the wrong hands, it's evil. And the same is true with all these things. No matter what it is you're doing, but if these things are trying to disciple you into something, what is that? Into the, into the evil? Because that's what God or the enemy wants to do is destroy you. So how are we doing it? What can we learn from this? from the Babylonians of all things. Here's what we can learn. We can be intentional and we can be immersive and we can also not be neutral. We can do that. We can do that. So let's talk about this. Jesus discipled his students this way, his disciples. He discipled them this way. For three and a half years, they lived with him. They heard his teachings. They saw his miracles. They saw him raise the dead, feed the 5,000. They saw him walk on water. They saw all those things. And because of what they saw and ultimately the resurrection itself, it changed them and they were never the same. And they were willing to give their lives for what they knew was true. Changes everything. I said this a few weeks ago, but the reason you are a Christian, and I hope it's because you know it's true, will determine not only how you live, but what you're willing to give up. Because if you know it's real and you know it's true, then nothing compares. Jesus was not neutral there's people out there today, well, Jesus never claimed to be God and he didn't believe in that. Like, you know what? You were wrong. I'm sorry, he was not neutral. Let me just throw a couple scriptures at you really quick. John 6, 66. I've never used 666 before, but <laughs> at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? To whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life we believe and we know that you are the holy one of god that is not neutral this is probably the most famous not neutral statement of christ in in john 14 6 he told them i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me 14 15 if you love me obey my commandments 5 24 i tell you the truth those who listen to my message and believe in god who sent me have eternal life they will never be condemned for their sins They've already passed from death into life. That is not neutral. Let me, let me raise the stakes a little bit more. Okay? We're talking about eternity here. This is the most important decision of people's lives. It's literally eternal life or death. I know we all hear about life or death decisions. This is bigger than that. Because it's eternal life or death. It's, <laughs> I thought of those corny bumper stickers. Remember the get right or get left ones? This is that. So be, be intentional, be immersive, and be not neutral. Don't be neutral. It starts with you. And you're here already. 
which is awesome. You're watching online. You're already doing it, a part of it. Keep doing that. I want, I, here's what I want to do is I want to help you be more intentional about your Christian walk. You choose. I heard this. You hear this about elections. You ever heard this? We get the president we deserve. You ever heard that? A government we deserve. Okay, a more true statement is you have the relationship with God that you deserve. He's there. He's ready. He wants it. It's all up to you. All up to you. So I, I know we, I, I mentioned this last week, and we do have classes starting not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday on the 7th. The classes are all in the lobby. There are, there's tables out there. You can go meet the teachers right after service. You can look at what they're teaching. You can sign up. All that's awesome. And I want you to do that. You can actually do the reading plan and read it. It's, it's phenomenal. Let me, let me make a, a point about this. Do, do you realize we kind of do church wrong for lifelong learning? Did you know that? Has anybody ever looked at the learning pyramid? You ever seen that before? Any, anybody who's taught, you know this. It's, there's a pyramid like this, right? The least effective thing is up here, 5%, which is lecture, <laughs> which is kind of what we're doing, right? I mean, there's no feedback loop. It's, I say these things, and, and there's no test. Do you guys want a test? You know what's a test? Life's the test. I'm sorry, but life is the test. You know what would improve it? Is if you actually read it. That, that bumps it up a couple more percentages. If, if you add some audiovisual, that helps. That's why we do things on the screen. That helps. You know what's even more? If I did a demonstration, which I don't know how to do that with this, but if we actually have a discussion... That, that gives you about 50% retention rate, which is good. That's why classes are so good. If you actually start putting it into action, then you jump to like 75%. You know what gets you to 90? When you become the rabbi and you teach somebody. You know why? Because you get to know it better and you study it, you learn it. You, to teach something teaches you even more. I want to challenge you to get to that point. Uh, what about our kids, though? What about the people you have influence over? Our kids are here, and we've got great kids ministry. I'm so excited about what we do here. And the people who volunteer, they're amazing. They're amazing. We believe in it. It's important. But I want to say something that is very true. You are still the primary discipler. You are. The way you live in front of them, the way you talk to them, how, you, how they see you responding, how they see you care about these things, that you are always going to be the primary discipler in all these things. And you're doing it. You brought them here today. That's awesome. I love that. But I want you to remember this. They're watching us all the time. Isn't it funny how kids do that? Isn't it funny how they copy the bad things easier <laughs> than the good things sometimes? But they're not the only ones. We're not the only ones after your kids. Other people are trying to disciple them right under your nose. So please be diligent. Please watch that. Please spend the time with them, invest in them. I'm going to close this right now, but do you know why it matters? We briefly talked about Daniel and the three Hebrew children. This is conjecture, but do you notice we didn't hear about any of the other kids that were put into this discipleship program? We don't know why. We don't know if they failed and became Babylonians. We don't know. You know who didn't? Daniel. You still know his Hebrew name. Why is that? Because he, he was... Why did the three Hebrew children go through the fire? 
You know, they went through the fire, right? There was a point where they were requiring everybody to bow to some idol. They said, sorry, we can't do that. And they're like, no, you have to. And then they threw them in a, in a furnace. And they, if you haven't read the story, just it's an amazing story. And then the king looks in there and he says, I thought we threw three men. It looks like another man. It looks like the son of God walking around in the fire with them. Pull them out. They're not even burned. And the people who threw them in died. How does that happen? You know why? They were discipled before Babylon by their parents. They were discipled before Babylon. God help us to get to our kids before Babylon does. I've told you the story, and, um, but it still gets me every time. I'm just going to tell you again. <clears throat> My son came home. He was a kid, elementary school. I said, how was school? What did you guys do today? And he said, oh, we were playing Prince of Persia at recess. I'm like, wait, what? Prince of Persia? You know what I was thinking of? Daniel chapter 9. Because in Daniel chapter 9, D- Daniel's praying. An angel comes to answer his prayer, and he says, I would have been here sooner. You started praying this prayer 28 days ago, but I was detained. Get this, 28 days by the prince of Persia, some demonic thing. Who knows? And Michael the archangel came and helped me, so I came and answered, but I need to go back and join the fight. So I'm looking at my kid and thinking, what, what exactly were you playing? Right? And he goes, well, Dad, it was this game we... One of the boys had this little character, a little character, and um, he could jump all around really cool, and he could jump off things, and so we're playing all over the playground. And so I, I Googled it. There was a movie coming out called Prince of Persia. And before the movie had even come out, Disney had put the, the, the action figures out, so kids were playing this before the movie even came out. He couldn't even watch the movie. It wasn't even old enough for him. But see what happened? Disney got to him before I did. I I was panicked. And it occurred to me that really all these things we do are the race to the heart of a child. And whoever gets there first wins. We have a huge responsibility. First for us, take responsibility. You, You need to be intentional about your personal relationship with Christ and help yourself grow. Whether that means you need to you know, set a time to pray or read the Bible or join the reading plan or join one of the classes coming up on Wednesday nights. You need to do that. And, and maybe it means you guard yourself intentionally from the other influences that are the enemy's effort to disciple you. Maybe that's you. And that's what you need to do from this sermon today. Maybe for you it's about immersion. Like, yes, I've walked with Christ, but I need more. We need more. And maybe for you, it's about your kids. I'll tell you, there's, no, there's nothing like a parent in the life of a child. So let me pray with you. Let me ask you to shut your eyes for a sec. I know there's people that I don't know in this room today, and I don't, I don't know everybody's spiritual condition. There's no way I could know that. I know that there's probably some people here, maybe, maybe one or two, maybe more, who maybe you've never even considered following Christ. And for whatever it is, maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart today and you realize today's the day I need to give myself to him just like those disciples did 2,000 years ago. Anybody here like that? That you haven't considered following him, but today's the day. I do see that hand. I appreciate that. Anybody else? Okay, let me ask another question. And this is, I know it's a room full of people. I ask you to shut your eyes just to give you that sense of privacy in the room and 
it's not about me seeing a hand. Really what it's about is there's something powerful about us doing something, saying, yes, I need to do this. You make a choice to change something. So I'm going to ask this question. I'm just wondering if maybe after what you've heard today, you realize that you need to be more intentional and you need to do some things different. Anybody here like that today? Yeah, there's hands up everywhere. And if I'm honest, mine's up too because every single one of us can do this better. My prayer is that you are discipled. I'm going to ask you to do this. If you would just stand with us, I'm going to close in prayer, but we do have people here who are, are trained. They want to pray with you. And if you need prayer for anything at all, maybe it's help with this. Maybe you're the one who raised your hand and you need somebody to, to guide you into be, becoming more like Christ. Maybe for you, maybe it's healing. Maybe you need to be baptized in the spirit. Today's your day. We have some people willing to pray with you. So I'm going to close in prayer. And right after, if you would come forward, we want it, we'll take as much time as we need. If you have already registered for the fast track class, all you need to do is just kind of head out of the lobby and take a left and we'll be in that room right there. If you want to sign up for one of the classes that are going to start in a week and a half, those tables will be right at the back of the lobby as you exit. So let me pray for us today. Father, I stand with my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room today. And I stand here as somebody who is evaluating. I hear your Holy Spirit speaking to me, nudging me, drawing me to a deeper relationship with you. I realize that there are things I need to be far more intentional about in my life, either to guard myself or to invest in my relationship with you. I realize, Lord God, that I need to be completely immersed in you if I'm going to call myself a disciple like you've called us to do. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would help everybody in this room, not, not just the ones who raise their hands, but literally every single one of us, that we will make an effort and a choice to, to prioritize our relationship with you and to grow in that relationship. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Uh, encourage somebody today. Shake a hand. Introduce yourself to somebody. It could be fun. Meet some people here today. God bless you.